Welcome to another episode of See Something, Say Something. I'm Carson. I'm joined today by Taylor and Diana. Hi, ladies. Hello. Today, we have recently watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the greatest movies of all time, Mm -hmm. one of the highest grossing films of the 80s, a film that may have launched the career of one of our most enduring movie stars, I mean, I don't know what more we could say about it other than it's one of the greatest things of all time. And today we're going to get into it from top to bottom. So hold on to your whips, hold on to your hats. And check for snakes on the plane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, whips and hats. This this is going, this is going in a good direction. I feel good about this one. (laughs) He's here, the world's greatest adventurer, Indiana Jones, in his first, biggest, and best adventure. It's the movie that sparked a new era of action, thrills, and entertainment to become one of the most popular films of all time. From George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and starring Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Tarantulas or snakes? What do you got? Which one scares you more? Tarantula. Tarantulas. Yeah, I can like I can handle a snake. I just need a machete and like they're big. You can usually be a little bit faster than them. You can take them out, but tarantulas are too they're they're too small. They're still huge. They're too big, but they're like too small to deal with. Like they can get into any nook and cranny and I'm not okay with that. I feel like I feel like I have to go with Dr. Jones on this one. Snakes more scary. And tarantulas. I feel like I could, while a tarantula is furry and, and like fearsome and the epitome of all things insect in movies, snakes in real life, my God, terrifying. They can chase after you and wrap your leg up and then strangle you and they can also come out of the toilet. So snakes. Okay. But you know that tarantulas can jump, right? Like how far? Like pretty far. They do this hopping thing. It's no joke. They've Wait. got those little pincers. They can come right at you. They naturally want to kill birds. I'm pretty sure they they just like pop up and like pluck birds out of the sky. All right, this might change my opinion. <laughs> those so do snakes, though. There are some snakes that eat birds. Well, so basically, when Alfred Merlina turns around in the opening scene of this film, and he's covered in spiders it's horrifying but indiana jones is just like cool i got this and takes his whip like a swiffer and just knocks them all off and is like come on let's get on with the job snakes i i don't know like snakes could snakes could chase me in my mind (laughs) like i might not be able to outrun a snake okay can we just can we just deep dive into two things you mentioned first of all alfred molina in this film little baby alfred molina Prolific actor shows up for like right. five minutes. And then also the idea of marketing whips as swiffers, which I think is an, another brilliant idea of yours, cursing and something that should definitely be explored. It's a side business of mine. Yeah. Um, what could we swift is the, is the URL. <laughs> uh Taylor, you said you had a, an idea for a kickoff. What, what was, uh, what's up? I, I just wanted to talk about the very first shot of the movie. Um, as you guys know, I'm a motion designer, so I'm a title sequence person. And this this movie doesn't necessarily have a title sequence, but uh, I, I just have like a kind of fun fact and also just what I like about this opening. 
Um, it's starting with like the scene of a mountain, which I did some research and apparently Spielberg before he was like a big movie star, like had his own kind of like production company where he would, um, he would, he would like, mo- like mimic the Paramount like opening logo. And so by using like a real mountain or real landscapes. And so this is like a nod to that, um, like starting with the mountain, which I love. And also like the typeface of this, this series, this franchise is really iconic. And then finally, Harrison Ford, I really appreciate opening up on his backside. It's wonderful. It's just exactly how every movie should start. Best 80s tush. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, don't want to devolve this into too much sexism too quickly, but uh, (laughs) Kevin Costner, Mm. uh, you know, I don't know who else. Prince? George Michael. And also, getting back, getting away from the tush, but keeping that in the top of the mind, because that's very important. I think the Indiana Jones franchise has, like, really, like, nailed this idea of, like, beginning with, like, it's like a cold open, kind of starting with this, like, mini adventure before, like, before the movie starts that I just, I love. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, like, this movie was the inspiration for this and for Star Wars. George Lucas talks about as being, like, I wanted to see the movies of my childhood reimagined as modern films. And they're both, like, based on serials from, I guess, like, the 40s and 50s. Flash Gordon was a big inspiration for Star Wars and a little bit of this. And so starting with, like, this is basically a serialized movie. Like, all the little chapters of it used to come out as reels as part of like Saturday matinees edited together with a bunch of different stuff. And so this cold open, which I totally agree with, like it sucks you into the movie and it's a perfect thing for it is basically just one of those chapters of serials. And then we're like on to the next thing. Like it's the perfect hook. It, uh, you get who this guy is, what motivates him, a little bit of his backstory with his rivalry with this other archeologist who basically, his entire MO is like, I'll just wait for Indiana Jones to find it and then I'll steal it. Um, with Belloc, he shows a bunch of his character motivation. He shows what he's afraid of. He tells you what he's uh, like, not afraid of. He shows you how smart he is. He's funny. Um, and he also gets like double crossed like two times in the first few minutes. And then like, who's his friend that's just fishing off the side of the plane as he's running away from Aboriginal tribesmen in the middle of the Amazon? Which, Jock. And start the plane, Jock. Jock! <laughs> start the plane! It's my pet snake. Jock's life. <laughs> what, what, Jock's, Jock must have his own cereal somewhere where, like, he's been divorced four times. He, uh, I don't know, maybe runs a fishing expedition outfit somewhere. Um, Diana, what do you think? Like, is is the opening scene one of your favorites, or are there just too many to even discuss? I, I mean, I think the great thing about this movie and watching it now that I'm a little bit older is there's just so much of everything. There are so many great looking actors. There are so many guns and explosions and fire and dangerous animals. There's a love affair, actually. There's like multiple love affairs going on. Um, we didn't touch at all on the relationship between Indy and his sort of like mentor slash boss at Princeton, but I think there's something going on there. I mean, it's just like, there's so much to love in every minute, um, let alone the sort of amazing uh, design effects and sort of the, the melting of flesh at various points. So I think, um, yeah, it's, 
it's action-packed. I think for me, the reference back to serials is super interesting in that those were really short, right? Like those were kind of like quick stints in and out. You could jump into a matinee, like a quick adrenaline rush and sort of watching a film. Um, some folks, I think, stayed all afternoon. But uh, yeah, I think Spielberg did this in, <laughs> he did like an hour and a half of that. Uh, so that's what the movie was like for me in rewatching it. Yeah, it's like a greatest hits of all those serials, almost as if you took like six weeks of matinees and just strung them all together, you know? Totally. This movie is like the the perfect Hollywood stunt film, really. Um, I grew up in Florida, so I constantly went to um, what I think it's called. I forget what it's called now, but I call it MGM, like Universal, all that. And they used to have like the stunt like a uh, live action performances where they would recreate some of those movies and yeah it's just always been like the when I think of an action movie I think of Indiana Jones yeah it's like one of my notes is like could this movie get made today by the way they made it then no like there's so there's so many like practical stunts that are being made whereas today I feel like almost all of this would be CGI right and possibly six hours long because it needs like 16 different other side stories to carry along with it. But like, you know, him on a whip underneath a moving truck, like they probably wouldn't do that today. <laughs> they would just figure out a way to make it a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every scene, like going back to the serial idea, like has a, an, a point A and a point B and like such a fascinating way of getting from point A to point B. And so it just keeps you watching. You can't look away. I also think Spielberg couldn't have made this post Schindler's List. Just saying, <laughs> I think like there, like it's it, it's it's hard to to stop and consider. I, it's all pre. It's it's all intended, I believe, to be taking place pre World War II. But we kind of see these Nazis. There's no mention really of the genocide that's happening over in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. They're just like these villains who are trying to invade America. There's sort of like little nuances that get slipped in of sort of anti-Semitism. Um, like a couple of subtle one-liners that tend to come from one of the Nazi generals. But beyond that, nothing. I'm so glad you brought that up because I did a little bit of research onto this because I was like really interested because I was like, oh, Schindler's List, a movie about Nazis from like a, you know, Jewish filmmaker, like there has to be something here. And apparently there's a a movie reviewer named Roger Ebert. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and apparently, hold on a second. You don't know who Roger Ebert is? <laughs> Ebert, Ebert. Oh man, yeah. I feel old. No. <laughs> I'm a baby. Oh guy. man, <laughs> but, gut punch. Oh no, I'm not qualified to be on this podcast. Clearly, um, but I read that. <laughs> no. His, his take on Raiders of Lost Ark is that it's a subversive satire. Um, so while Schindler's List is like his mature take on the Holocaust, Raiders is like his fantasy as a Jewish boy trying to seek retribution against these horrible people. So it's, and there's a lot of like little hints and, and, and moments like when the rat is like shriveling up um, and how Nazis would call Jewish, Jewish people rats. Like there's a lot of little like subtle nods there. So it's like kind of meant to be a satire. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) In my research, there was something that came up when they were talking about the script and they realized they hadn't really mentioned Jews. They'd mentioned Nazis all throughout and everybody knows mm-hmm. that Nazis are awful, but they'd never really mentioned the hatred of the Jews by the Nazis at any point. 
and they needed to work that in. And so I guess as they're opening the ceremony where they're opening the ark, the German general says something to the effect of like, you know, there's too many Jewish overtones to all of this that makes me uncomfortable, but let's just get on with it because we need to find the ark and win the war. Like that's the only thing I think that's in the movie that sort of points to the, the specific hatred of the Jews by the Nazis. Mainly, I think, because, you know, when it came out in 1981, everyone knew you didn't have to explain that, like, Nazis were the bad guys. It was just an instant bad guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot of unexplained in this movie. And the other big glaring unexplained is apparently Marion and Indiana were lovers when she was a teenage child. Yeah. Did either one of you pick up on that? <laughs> yeah. And that definitely goes into my problematic list for this movie. Um, oh, my right. goodness. All right, well, that's going to take a lot to unpack, I think. So we'll get back to that in a little bit. I mean, women in but, general throughout the film <laughs> are kind of just sort of what, not. What women? That's, <laughs> yeah. what women? that's exactly <laughs> They're just not there. You've got Marianne, who's always in need of, well, actually, you know what? She's not in need of help when you first meet her, right? Like, she's drinking some mm-hmm. other guy under the table, but then that quickly turns into a series of her fumbling and constantly needing to be mm-hmm. rescued. Um, and I think, actually, I can't really think of any other women who are featured. So the only other one, I did, I did a, I ran a, um, uh, a, what's it called? Oh, my God. A Bechtel test. A Bechtel test? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's him. And apparently, how, how did it perform? So apparently it passes. But I, as a woman, I disagree with this because... There is one other woman that has a speaking role in this film. Um, it's Salal's wife, and uh, she is has a name. Um, I think it's said in the movie, and she does speak to Marianne, I believe, about the monkey, the monkey being in the house. Um, but it's one line. I so technically it passes. However, it just it seems insignificant to me. So I I personally fail it. Well. I was going to segue into a bunch of our uh, sort of explanations and scene setters and things like that, but this seems like a really good time to talk about Marion. She's my biggest question mark in the whole film. So Marion, like, all right, she's extremely powerful, but her superpower is alcoholism, apparently. (laughs) Like, we meet her in a bar in Nepal where she's drinking a large group of people under the table. The main person is not really sure if it's a man or a woman, just a very large person. And that's her basic saving grace besides owning a bar in Nepal that happens to be where the medallion for the map room of the Ark of the Covenant is hiding out. The only other time that she really is super powerful in the rest of this movie and not screaming for Indiana's help is when she's trying to trick Belloc into escaping by drinking him under the table. Mm-hmm. Like, if if Marion had her own spinoff, would she just walk around with bottles of whiskey trying to get other people drunk to get her way? Like, why? And why didn't Marion get her own spinoff of this movie? Because it happened in 1981, or like I, don't I know. think because they didn't really build up her character enough they would have needed to go into that more, right? Like, she's the daughter of this esteemed archaeologist, supposedly. We know it's Indy's mentor. Um, I think we we know that at this point. Uh, yeah. 
we don't understand how she came to be in Nepal. We don't fully understand um, how she's making money on her own. You know, a woman in the 30s during that time. It's it's truly interesting. She could have had her own spinoff, but I don't think they wanted to devote the resources. After this, I think, Carson, you said that um, Star Wars comes up. So I think they probably went into another male-centric film with a single female lead um, who, after initially presenting as very strong, quickly falls into this series of circumstances where she needs a man to come along and rescue her. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you're referring to Princess Leia. I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to sort of set where when this movie came out, the cultural time around it, uh, early Reagan years, 1981, the highest grossing film of 1981, it made $390 million against the budget of $18 million. Uh, the $18 million was apparently over budget for <laughs> for the movie, which is just mind-boggling that they could make this thing for under $20 bucks. Uh It stayed in theaters for 40 weeks before finally moving on. Um, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, lines behind it, as well as Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote this film and then was immediately hired by... Uh, George Lucas to write Empire Strikes Back, which came out the following year. Um, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had made Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters, and then immediately after this, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Harrison Ford had just made Star Wars, was about to make Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then I looked at his IMDb page, basically the next 20 years are just blockbuster movie after blockbuster movie mm-hmm. until he sort of segues into like maybe just hanging out in Wyoming and not really caring about the movies he wants to make. Uh, critical reception, uh, a film critic named Roger Ebert, I believe. Uh, oh, Ebert. <laughs> That's right. Roger Ebert guy, gave it you know. four stars. Uh, <laughs> Raiders. He, he said, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is an out of body experience, a movie of glorious imagination and breakneck speed that grabs you in the first shot hurdles you through a series of incredible adventures and deposits you back in reality two hours later, which like it's everything that we've been saying so far. It's just a nonstop thrill ride of a movie carried by Harrison Ford. And like it went on to receive nine nominations for Academy Awards, which is just staggeringly like, I have no idea how that happened to a popcorn movie in the early eighties. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Cinematography, and Score, and it won five awards, Best Editing, Best Sound, Art Direction, Sound Effects, and Visual Effects. Um, you know, to me, parts of this seem like it didn't quite hold up to what we're used to now, right? The action kind of feels cartoony in a lot of spots. Uh, his escapes from the various tight spots that he gets himself into feel a little bit, like, fortunate. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still an exciting movie and I can't quite put my finger on why. Is it Harrison Ford? Is it the authenticity of the whole thing? Is it the script? Is it the Guys, way I it got was it. made? What? It is Guy Fieri's trash can nachos, right? So hear me out on this. It is, it is everything shoved together. <laughs> There's like a little bit of something for everyone, right? Like this is a great date movie. There's something there, you know, depending on who you take, maybe they'll, latch onto the romanticism or maybe they'll latch onto the violence um, or maybe they'll latch onto the fact that they don't have to pay attention at all, but can still walk away feeling like they know something about it. Um, it's lovable. It's messy. 
Um, maybe not cheap to make, but cheap to enjoy. And so that is why, Carson, I, I, I solved it. Trash can nachos. <laughs> why didn't we call this podcast trash can nachos? <laughs> I think we were fearing lawsuits from Guy Fieri. That's flavor time. Taylor, why is this? Is this one of your favorite movies? Favorite movies? Ooh, I don't know about that. I'm more of a sci-fi girl. Um, personally, but I think in the category of like a action stunt film, I would definitely put this at the very top of the list. Like nothing current really compares in my mind. There's a lot of nostalgia there. Have we ever seen an archaeologist, anthropologist, PhD doctor as an action hero? I don't think so. Yes. Well, yes. Before Wasn't there this. a spinoff with one of the doctors from ER called The Librarians that was definitely you, inspired by this film. Are you talking about Noah Wiley's yes. ripoff of National Treasure? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but isn't Which National is, Treasure also kind of a spinoff of Indiana Jones? Yeah, apparently this movie launched like every attempt for any strong-ish male actor to like look scared and save the day. Uh, Tom Selleck, who was in consideration for the role of Indiana Jones and had to turn it down due to his commitments to Magnum PI was in a movie three years after this called, Oh geez. I don't have it written down. I didn't think we were going to talk about it. This is the part where I fumble around and then edit it out later. Well, to fill that silence, I will just say, I love that he turned this down to work on Magnum PI. That it's not delightful. that he turned it down. He actually legally was not able to. He was blocked from the role. Oh. Yeah. Magnum PI hooked him in. And His contract at Magnum just said, like, no, we're sorry. You have to nope. stay in Hawaii. Similarly, um, the, the original actor that they wanted to cast for Sala was um, none other than Danny DeVito. But he also was contractually obligated um, due to his role in Taxi. I gotta say. So this could have been a whole other movie. <laughs> I think that was a win for the production. All love and respect to Danny DeVito. I do not think he would have had the same presence in that role. Well, Tom Selleck's attempt at recreating Indiana Jones's magic failed so badly that I can't even find the name of it on an, on an internet search. But Danny DeVito, you may remember, teamed up with uh, Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas to make Romancing the Stone in the mid-80s, which was also a direct copy of the Indiana Jones influence. Um, and not a bad movie, but mainly because of Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. A little bit of Dan DeVito. Um, have either of you ever seen anyone in a college class write a message on their eyelids toward their handsome, hunky, attractive professor? It was the third. It's supposed to be the thirties. Cut her some slack. She was doing her best at like ingenue. Okay. <laughs> what was the message on the eyelids? Was it like, like love? I think love you. Love or, you. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But my favorite coda to that entire scene is this sort of like the class seems to be filled entirely with with young women, and then as it's emptying out, and Marcus. Uh, is talking to Dr. Jones about their next adventure. There's one straggling boy 
who just ambles up to the desk and sheepishly puts an apple on it for Dr. Jones. <laughs> and what's it like to be the one boy that's pining for Indiana Jones? I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be a very I think that's the journey. point, Carson. I think there were way more than one boy out there. <laughs> way more than one boy out there pining for Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh, Han Solo or Indiana Jones? Ooh. Oh, man. Han Solo is an interstellar space pirate with a nine-foot furry companion, and he has a gun. Uh, Indiana Jones, swashbuckling hero in real life with a whip and a little bit of a gun. Um, I think, like... It's hard to tell which life I would rather lead or which person I would rather admire. Yeah. It's almost like you have to take them in a void, like take them away from their environment, right? It's like, what person would you rather like hang out with? And I think my answer, I think my answer would still be Han Solo. Just because I think he has way crazier stories. Like, he just seems more interesting. Yeah, I think Han Solo might shoot me at some point, though. Yeah. Like, so I, I do think Han Solo I would, I would has no friends. Marry. I got it. I would I would marry I would marry Indy and um I would hang out with Han Solo. Diana? I mean I'm a sucker for a bow tie. So <laughs> Indy's wearing a lot of those throughout different scenes and so I, I yeah, I'm I'm Indiana Jones. He's the take home to your mom kind of guy. I was literally thinking that Taylor <laughs> I was hesitating to say it out loud. I'm like, and Han, really Han is know, the bad boy. But I don't... Han's the bad boy. <laughs> Han Solo would not show up for whatever date you had planned to go see your parents. Like, there would be something that gets in the way. Indiana Jones might be there. <laughs> and one of my favorite moments in this movie, the style of it, is Indy gets on a plane at the very beginning of the adventure when he leaves... Do we, do we ever know what college it is? Is it Princeton or something like that? Pretty like, sure it's Princeton. Yeah. When, so he leaves, leaves the East Coast, uh, gets on a plane, and the plane has, like, wood paneling and curtains. And his sleep mask is his fedora, which I just think is fantastic. Um, let's get into some of the categories. Most rewatchable scene. Uh, I've got a few written down. Uh, obviously the opening scene that we've touched on, stealing the idol, escaping the boulder, uh, twirling the, the guy, the bad guy twirling the sword in the bazaar. And then Indiana Jones is like, how's he going to get out of this? And just comes up with that whole thing of like, well, I'll just shoot him. Like (laughs) as a kid, that was hands down my favorite scene. Like I was like on the edge of my seat, like, God, he's finally met his match. And then didn't even think that like, oh yeah, he has a gun on his hip. Finding the right place for the medallion in the map room, like, I just think the way that that scene is constructed with the score and, like, nobody talks through the whole scene. Actually, that's not true. There's some um, either German or Arabic spoken, but there's no English spoken in the entire scene. And the whole thing is done by Harrison Ford and John Williams' amazing score. Marion and Indy bickering in the snake room as they're trying to fend off thousands of pythons and cobras. Where'd you get this? From him? I was trying to escape! No thanks to you. How hard were you trying? A couple of fight scenes fighting the giant Nazi guy outside the plane. The car chase where he goes under the truck. 
And then finally the opening of the arc where I had nightmares for about 10 years. I've always, I've always loved that. Like whenever I rewatch that movie, it's like in, in, every scene is a build up to me for the, the face melding scene. Like it's just so interesting, like how they did it, how it like for the time was so realistic and like nightmarish, I'm sure. Yeah, I love that. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. Don't look at it no matter what happens. Yeah, like the guy, I didn't have his name written down, but the guy that came up with the practical effect for that apparently was just inundated with requests from other special effects professionals of like, all right, what was your recipe? How'd you do it? We need to do a similar thing on this film. And he would be like the advisor for face melting for years to come. <laughs> I need that. The advisor of face melting. On, I like to make a plaque. <laughs> Out of curiosity though, and I think I, I feel like I know what you will say, but curious to hear your thoughts. Whenever I see gore like that, I'm always left wondering, is it additive or was someone just having fun? Um, mm. Take it or leave yeah. it. Would you, if you were re redoing this, to keep that level, that level of flesh meltingness? It's totally interesting you say that because I, I typically hate gore. I'm not into bloody stuff. I'm not into like body ickiness. Um, I don't know why I love the face melting so much. It has to have to be like a factor of like, like the fuck the Nazis. Oh, sorry. Can I not curse on this? Screw up, like screw the Nazis. Um, no, like, you, you can fucking say whatever the fuck you want on this thing. hell, Taylor. Um, God damn it. Okay. And then I, I think it's like because it, to me it's like there's like the valley of the uncanny, right? If it was like too realistic, it would be gory to me. But like this is almost like you can tell it's a model. So it just kind of – it's more spooky. It feels like Halloween. Yeah, I mean it's it's something that like one of our designers said in meetings a while back, like the illustration sort of let your imagination fill in the gaps. And while this is gore and it's a little bit over the top, I think the sort of childlike is the wrong way to describe it, but the almost amateurish approach of the face melt, as opposed to what we're Mm -hmm. used to today um, is a bit refreshing as a child. It was the most scary thing I've ever seen. And Indiana's advice to close my eyes would have, I should have heeded that. Um, also, because that's there, what we get <laughs> from keeping we, our eyes open. We kind of build up to this throughout the movie because there are many moments where there's like a dead skeleton, and every time, and it somehow like is like there's one in the beginning um, with like the spikes to the face, and then when they're leaving the um, the uh, well of souls or whatever it's called, the kind of like snake room, and they're going through the all like where all the suddenly all the skeletons come to life and like there's like a screaming sound effect out of nowhere um it's kind of like that ooky spooky halloweeny kind of like skeleton ish vibe that i kind of I, I kind of love it it's a jump scare yeah you know like it's a uh, it's one of those things that if i ever do get tricked into watching a scary movie that's what i'm kind of on the uh, watching out for right and there's a bunch of those in here yeah and it's yeah like I think Spielberg used it in Jaws, one of his previous films, when Richard Dreyfuss is going looking for evidence of a shark attack 
and a, a decapitated head rolls out of a part of a boat and into his field of view. And that thing will stay with me until I die. So <laughs> it's interesting how extremely this, effective. This movie is so in many ways, I mean, obviously it's a Hollywood stunt movie, but it, in many ways it's very realistic in its betrayal. Like it's, it's grounded. Um, it's, you know, Indy is like kind of a down to earth dude, just like trying to make it, but there's like this like kind of overarching mystical element to the whole movie. And especially as it pertains to death. And so like those moments where you do have like a random skeleton coming out of the wall screaming, it just like, it it feels like such a different movie, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure the point I'm trying to make there, but I find it really interesting. Diana, do you have any thoughts for best quotes of the movie? Oh, no, not at the top of my is this movie quotable? I mean, Head. it's almost like it's like a, the scenes are so iconic. Is there an iconic quote? That's a really good point because, like, as I was trying to think of best lines, like, Sala has a couple for comedic relief. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, all the ones that I saw in that were cited in trivia or research is like Indiana's best lines. I was like, oh, yeah, I sort of remember that. You know, they're. I think you're right. Like it's, it's way more about the action and the scenes and his attitude than it is about any particular like line delivery. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say the writing kind of gives me like a Humphrey Bogart, like Casablanca kind of like, here's looking at you kid kind of style. Um, the only quote that I was like, Oh, I really like this is when um, Marianne and Indy see each other for the first time. And you're not the man I knew 10 years ago. And it's, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. Like, those kind of quotes. They're not quotable, but it's just like, uh, you know? Not the man I knew 10 years ago. It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. Apparently, that was ad-libbed. Really? Uh, so, Kasdan didn't, didn't write that, and Harrison Ford came up with it as on, on his own. Why is Harrison Ford so perfect? Ugh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Belloc. I feel like had some good lines. Um, he's a little bit, I feel like he could have had a spinoff all, all of his own. Uh, but he has that bit where he, I think Indy like gets a gun somehow. He's about to like shoot the arc or blow something up. Um, and basically Belloc manipulates him into dropping the gun. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks to him about, maybe is that the point? He talks to him about becoming one with the archeology, span like becoming history himself. Jones? Jones! I'm gonna blow up the arc, Renee. Okay, Jones. You win. Blow it up. Yes, blow it up! Throw it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. It's interesting then because it ties into what the arc represents overall anyway. And I think sort of like why Indy is doing what, like his true motivation um, behind Mm -hmm. all of this, like excavating history, the ability to relate that to what's going to happen in the future. 
and it's said from one one rival to another. And so for me, I think there is a line, although I want to now look it up, what it okay. is exactly. Uh, I feel like that would that point is it. Yeah, Belloc has like he's the voice of reason from a couple different sides. He's like, you know, just team up with the the Nazis and go find all the artifacts that you've always wanted to find. Don't worry about the reasons behind it. Like he's constantly sort of the counter argument to Indy's not entirely altruistic approach to archaeology. Like you know, this belongs in a museum is one of the things that he like yelled. Yeah, and. Uh, Belloc's just like, no, we're doing this because we love to find the stuff. We love to uncover all the stuff. And then he's like, yeah, that's fine, but just don't do it for the Nazis. You know? He's such a great Belloc, foil like, to Indy in so many ways. Well, because he's just as capable, if not more, mm-hmm. but he sold his soul, right? Okay, uh, but real talk, though. Indy is going around digging up sacred artifacts from countries outside the U.S., appropriating them and bringing them back to his little museum in New Jersey. So, <laughs> but we Which love him anyway me. because his intent is good, right? He, like, he thinks he's, he believes he is helping. That is a perfect segue into what has aged the worst from this movie. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's... Uh... I don't know how they would approach it these days. It is a B-movie. It is bubblegum you know, cinema, it's not supposed to solve a ton of problems, but it is a bit uh, worrying that it's celebrating raiding tombs, right? Like Mm -hmm. uncovering things that should be left covered. Yeah, it's it's glorifying colonialism. Um, Yeah. I mean, which for the 80s, duh. Like that just is the most 80s concept I can think of, like just making, you know, it's orient orientalizing and 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 kind of like making everything that's not white seem savage. But then like you also want all the cool gems and 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 collect all the artifacts that you can um, for yourself. So yeah, it's obviously problematic. My other thing on what's aged the worst is the actual specific male gaze when Belloc brings the white dress to Marianne is like, is like here, look what I've got for you. And then watches her change into it. <laughs> um, that seems that seems the one scene that really lags. Like this whole movie has such great pacing, and there's like again, like that point a, point A to point B. Like we we know where we're going, whereas that scene just drags to me. Um, it never stops, and I don't know if it's like meant to be character development for Belloc and Marianne as a. I don't know what it's trying to achieve other than her escaping. I think really the one thing that somebody brought up online was that they needed a way for her to be dressed in that dress when she gets thrown into the tomb. And also why did why does he have a dress with him? Like in the middle of of Egypt, like I'm very confused. It's one of the ways it's one of the ways that he's extending his hand and saying like look what your life could be like look what i've I've brought a perfect wedding dress into the middle of this desert i would imagine all the possibilities that we could have when we're back in wherever they are sherenburg i mean there could be a version of this that ends where all the nazis in belloc all put on their dresses and heels and and do a little dance around the ark sadly that cut never got made but uh 
That is a great call out. Why the hell did he have a dress? If not to dance around with a bunch of Nazis. I I maintain that was the real reason. Marianne just came onto the scene and he was like, oh, this would be, it would be nice to see it on her. If only Mel Brooks could have been part of this movie. <laughs> Maybe that's where the producers came from. <laughs> um, quickly running through some half-assed internet research. Uh, the scene where Indiana shoots the, you know, the swordsman in the middle of the town bazaar. Uh, he was supposed to take the whip and grab the sword out of the guy's hand, but they couldn't get the stunt right. It wasn't working. It was super hot in Tunisia. No one really liked filming there. And finally, Harrison Ford's like, what if I just shoot the guy? And (laughs) That's what I heard. I I thought the rumor was that he had food poisoning or some kind of upset stomach, and he was like, fuck this. I'm just going to shoot the guy. And Spielberg's like, fine, yeah, great. So they got to Tunisia, everyone got sick, everyone hated it, it was way too hot. Spielberg tried to figure out a way to cut days out of the shooting schedule and took six weeks and compressed it into four and a half, which, amazing. And basically Spielberg was the one person that never got sick because he brought all his own food. Does anyone know what that food was? No idea. He brought cans of SpaghettiOs to Tunisia and subsisted on basically Chef Boyardee the entire shoot. I'm going to, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Film directors are weird. You guys, they're just (laughs) weird. (laughs) That is the only reasonable explanation for why he would pack SpaghettiOs and fly halfway across the world. Yep. He, He knows what he likes. Uh, the, the whip that, uh, Indiana Jones used, uh, was made of kangaroo hide and it was sold in December of 1999 at auction at Christie's for $43,000. And his jacket and hat are on display at the Smithsonian, much like the character Indiana would have preferred. I'm sure he agrees that these belong in a museum. Um, Alfred Molina, who has gone on to many, many, many great things. This is his first credited screen role. Uh, his first scene on his first day of filming was being covered with tarantulas. And uh, the the sequence featured live tarantulas, but none of them moved until they added a female tarantula to his back, and that got the rest of them to move around. Are we surprised by this? I am not surprised by this. <laughs> um to create the sound of the heavy lid of the arc being slid open, sound designer Ben Burt recorded him moving the lid of his toilet cistern at home and then used a bunch of effects on it and stuff like that. I just love sound designers. Ooh, speaking um, of that, I want to call out one of my favorite sound effects, which is the snakes. And apparently he like ran his fingers through a cheese casserole to achieve that effect, which... Yes. Brings me to, to the iconic line from WAP, the macaroni in a pot. Um, I like that Cardi B <laughs> and Ben Burt have that in common. Uh, one last little bit. The, uh, the sadistic Nazi interrogator is never mentioned in the film, although Marion calls him Herr Mach. But his name is actually taught uh, the German word for death. And the role was offered to Klaus Kinski, who writes in his book, Kinski Uncut, excellent title, 
that mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg offered him a part in this movie, but he turned it down. Quote, as much as I'd like to do a movie with Spielberg, the script is as moronically shitty as so many other flicks of this ilk. End quote. Kinski instead chose to appear in Venom, which <laughs> I've never seen. Um, and then finally, in 2014, I didn't know this at all, and I really want to seek it out. Steven Soderbergh published uh, an experimental black and white version of the movie, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, with the original soundtrack and dialogue replaced by an electronic soundtrack. And Soderbergh mm-hmm. said his intention was to encourage viewers to focus on Spielberg's extraordinary staging and editing. And, quote, the filmmaker forgot more about staging by the time he'd made his first feature than I know to this day. I want to go find that. Yeah. Oh, I have one more very important thing that we have not talked about. I just want to make sure we mention. Please. The Nazi monkey. The Nazi monkey. Oh, my gosh. Did, that, did anyone else not love the Nazi monkey? There's a Nazi monkey? I was, it's it's the very monkey. next thing on my list. <laughs> my um, my only... So there's the next category is the overacting award, and the only one I had down for that was the monkey with the Hitler salute. Did you know... <laughs> That they trained him to do that salute prior to the movie, and then he refused to do it. So it took weeks for them to get the Nazi salute from the monkey. And I just, I appreciate him for that, you know? Fucking Nazi monkey. We all know animals are more intelligent than human beings, and that is one glorious example of (laughs) noncompliance from our ape friend. I guess I, I, in my head, separated him from the Nazis, Taylor, but you are right. He was a Nazi monkey, and I am forever changed in watching that film. Uh, some casting what-ifs. We already talked about how Tom Selleck was offered the role, couldn't do it. Other actors considered for the role included Paul Lamott, Christopher Guest, Bruce Boxleitner, Barry Bostwick, Sam Elliott, Mark Harmon, Nick Mancuso, Peter Coyote, John Calvin, Michael Bain, Sam Shepard, and the Hoff, David Hasselhoff. Uh, <laughs> imagine Hasselhoff as Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Christopher Indiana... Guest. Oh, go ahead. Christopher Guest as Indiana Jones. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it. What were you going to say, Diana? No, I was going to say, if the Hoff were to be in a version of Indiana Jones, I think it would be a musical version, and I, for one, would be on board. I'm here for that now, too. Like, I want the Hoff now. Governor. (laughs) Well, there's about to be an Indiana Jones 5, so maybe the Hoff will make an impersonation as one of the Germans, perhaps? Maybe it will be a musical in the movie where the Hoff plays Indy. I don't know. We, we can workshop this and get back, get back to the production team. Yeah, but I think the monkey needs to come back, too. This time in the form of, like, a resistance fighter. Ooh, I like a character. What if he leads an army of monkeys? <laughs> and he's the leader of an army of monkeys in the resistance. A reformed I, baddie. I don't know where else we can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really go through the that guy nominations like actors that show up in the movie where you're like oh that guy i've seen that guy before and the only there's there's a couple like marcus who is in the beginning of the movie with indiana at princeton is the butler in trading places coleman uh 
Trading Place is another candidate for rewatchables. The Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, John Landis comedy from the 80s. Classic. Um, Denholm Elliott plays the Nazi guy who burns his hand on the... Uh, oh, that guy. That guy is the medallion. Like, the like typical, like stereotypical Nazi look. He really just nails it. Have I've never seen him in anything else. Oh, I've no idea who he ever... is, but he looks like a Nazi yeah. to me. Diana? <laughs> Wait a second, Taylor. No one Nazi you, would I see one. <laughs> are you Nazi profiling? <laughs> Probably, yeah. I think the shape of Nazi has evolved in recent years. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And we, I, I, I read something about Denholm Elliott that he was an actor who became an agent because he stopped booking things. Mm. And so Spielberg kind of plucked him as like, you look like a Nazi. So Taylor, you're not too far off. Spielberg and I share many things where we have excellent taste and we know our Nazis. Is is Spielberg also a cat fan? I, I hope so. No evidence on the internet about Spielberg's love of cats. We'll have to add that if one of these. Uh, so yeah, any other actors stand out? There's only one other in my mind, uh, and he shows up in the first ten minutes of the movie. We're like, wait, is that a ten-year-old Alfred Molina? Like really? how old he actually was. Yeah, he was He's he wasn't a baby. He wasn't ten, there. but he was probably drinking age, but just. And he is Indy's assistant as they're raiding the Peruvian cavern for the idol. Oh he plays Jock. Uh, By the way. Did we never talked about oh Taylor, I appreciate you. Are you drinking whiskey? Oh no, I, it's tea. I see I wish. I still can't open the whiskey I still appreciate you. <laughs> Just a modicum of disappointment. No. Um, so <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't talk about, in that scene with Alvin Molina, I don't think we did, about the ball rolling down and how that is that this iconic yes. scene. I don't how, think we talked about that. No, is, how can we, we miss that? About snakes and tarantulas. Is it a ball? It's a boulder. Right? It's a, it's a boulder. It's a, it's a ball of rock. Well, see, now that's the big reveal of this movie is that they're inside a pinball machine the whole time. Yeah, it's a it's a giant boulder that apparently was real. They like constructed that, and he had to actually outrun it for five different takes before Spielberg was convinced that he had enough coverage to make the scene work. And so they constructed it out of not stone, but something that was sturdy enough that it was more than like. Foam. So between foam and stone, which is mm-hmm. the name of my third album. Um, progressive rock band that I have on the side. It's, we'll talk about that in another episode. But yeah, he had a, to outrun that thing. There's a, I think it's a Japanese game show where it's like basically that on steroids. Just putting it out there if you want to Google it. It's very entertaining to watch. That's another idea for a podcast. We all watch Japanese game shows together and try to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah, but the boulder is like, I mean, the entire opening, I think we talked about the opening scene, but we, like, we didn't really go into details of just like all the different booby traps and like the like iconic, like picking up the, the 
golden figurine replacing it with a bag and then like all the arrows and the the boulder and then like gets through all of this and he gets his prize and then it's like taken away from him which is kind yeah, of it's, uh, like an allegory not an allegory a metaphor for the entire movie right like he goes through all of this and then he you know doesn't even get to keep the ark it belongs in a museum yeah, and then that's the last shot. Is it? It's taken away and and put into an underground facility, never to be seen again. Well, maybe maybe the spirit of that Taylor is that it doesn't want to be kept, right? Like these are things that humankind should not be interfering with. Mm. Don't touch the ark, as my mom used to always say growing up. Just don't do it. <laughs> as so many moms say. Don't touch the art. <laughs> uh, yeah, like that opening scene is twist and turn. It's like it ratchets the action up to 10 immediately. Uh, Alfred Merlino with a nice comic turn as the pseudo villain that's sort of trying to help him, but also trying to steal his stuff. But it's really just like it's the cold open of a James Bond movie. And you get to see all of the character traits of this mortal superhuman and like defying every single obstacle that comes in his way for about 10 minutes until the credits roll. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm all in for this guy. And it's funny, like Spielberg made this movie because he couldn't get consideration to make an actual James Bond film. Mm-hmm. Like he was lobbying to direct the next James Bond when they weren't able to make that happen. He's like, fine, I'll just, make something else. And so he and George Lucas dreamed up this like, you know, forties version of James Bond Mm. based on the serials that they watched when they were kids. And so it's a perfect execution of like, if you go back and watch any classic James Bond movie, even the modern ones, they have that cold open of like Bond is going to die. How's he going to get out of this? Yeah. And the boulder and the spears and the spiders and the darts and the obstacle course of death that he survives only to get into some, house painter's plane that's filled with snakes and fly away over the Andes. Yeah, they definitely, like, subvert that a little bit, where they, like, introduce him. He's, like, this dark, shadowy figure. He has all these, like, heroic moments. And then, like, he's, like, suddenly running away from all these, like, tribal people trying to kill him and, like, screaming. And he's so human and funny and relatable. And, like, he's, like, hot. He's a hot mess. And he's adorable, you know? So it's like, they kind of like, they really capture both the James Bond, but also like that kind of like rogue Han Solo vibe as well. Yeah. Cause James Bond never quite becomes, there's a comedic moment in at least once in all of his movies, but he, he never really becomes like an everyman. Mm-hmm. Whereas Indiana Jones, despite all of his, you never really believe that he's backed by like, exploding pens and cars that transform into planes and super gadgets that like James Bond actually is. He's just got a whip and a hat and, you know, a well-formed physique that gets him out of most trouble. He does have that gun in that one scene. Yeah. Don't forget the gun. It comes out of nowhere. He does. But like Barney Fife apparently only has one bullet. Maybe he picks some more up as he goes along. He also has a bazooka at one point. So yes, he does have more than just the whip. But I hear you. I hear I hear that I hear it's like 
uber masculinity, right? All I need are my hands and my hat and my, my brain, and I will just make it all happen, brute force. And, and maybe the help of an old flame that I find at a bar in Tibet. No, she, she just has a drinking problem, that one. <laughs> well, is there anything else that we want to talk about with Marion? Like, that's kind of one of my nits to pick with this, is that, like, she doesn't get her due. I think we've already talked about that. And there's many sociopolitical factors as to why Marion probably would never get her own spinoff from this. But the way that her relationship is constructed with Indiana Jones, apparently, like, they met years ago, and she was young, and he was a little older. And there's this conversation online that you can go look up. It's a transcription of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan, the writer, sitting around brainstorming all the different little plot lines and character traits of Indiana Jones and his adventures. And at one point, they're debating the age difference between Indy and Marion. And they settle on that Marion was about 15 when they first hooked up. And she's grown a bit now that they've reunited. But she resents Indiana taking advantage of her at such a young age. And Kasdan, mm-hmm. the writer, skirts all of that by just having her scream, I was young. And he's, his retort is, oh, you knew what you were doing. Yeah. Which, There's like a, a part of that transcript where they're like, oh, yeah, she's seducing him. Which, like, she's 15, it's, stop. It's mind-blowing that George Lucas was arguing that she had to be younger than 17 because 17's boring. <laughs> but that's one of the things that hasn't aged well, I think. Definitely not, No. Um, Diana, did you pick up on, on any of that as you were watching it? Like, is it apparent that she was a child when they were first hanging out? It's apparent that she's a child, but I think what's also a bit frustrating in general is that she she seems to have no understanding. She grew up with this father, who's apparently this, this famous archaeologist himself, um, and seems to have no understanding of this very important piece of metal that she's just casually slung around the candle in her bar in front of all these people um, sitting there <laughs> uh, because, you know, to her it must just be jewelry. I think it, it's, I, yeah, it, just, it did not age well. I think also, the, just quick side note, it's giant. It's huge. Yeah. It's like the size of your face. And she just like was casually wearing it as a pendant. Not convincing. No woman would wear that. Even if they were, sadly, in an inappropriate relationship when they were 15, <laughs> they would probably still be mm-hmm. there. Yeah, so I think that there's nothing about her character um, that isn't on some level demeaning, I, I, to be totally right. Um, even, even at the end, when there's this opportunity, you think maybe where the two of them are going to have this mutual respect for each other, she goes and meets him. I guess at school, or it's not clear where, where he is. At least it wasn't clear to me. Um, and the best she can do is offer the vitamin bin. I will say, while she is primarily the damsel in distress throughout this movie, she does save Indy's life twice. He, he, I think she also kills man. Um, she's 
she's presented as kind of like she's like wearing more masculine clothing and she is presented as like more of a sidekick like there's not a ton of chemistry like there's a couple scenes but for the most part she's kind of like his sidekick trying to help out and yeah she's the damsel in distress a lot of times and then they there's that whole like kind of like the sexualizing of her getting dressed and the camera just kind of like creepily lingering on her we won't even go into the male gaze into this movie but um I found an article it's I think a blog post and I just like there's a little blurb I kind of wanted to quote it's called it's from a blog called as little as possible and I'm just gonna read it Indiana Jones pursues two things in his movies an artifact and a woman two out of three of times he gets both but just as the Ark is long forgotten by the Temple of Doom, so is Karen Allen. I like to think Indy puts his woman in a museum alongside the artifacts and visits them from time to time to tap on the glass and wink. Which I think pretty much summarized how I feel about how women in this entire franchise are treated. They're treated like the artifacts. Just another object to collect as he's going along. Exactly. Well, and again... That aligns with the James Bond franchise pretty perfectly as well. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the other things that stood out to me as I was watching this that, that could have been a little better. George Lucas and his stormtroopers can never hit anything. He's got kind of the same influence over the bad guys in this movie. Indiana Jones gets shot at like 150 times and never yeah. really ever gets hit. <laughs> um, so... The bad guys have the same hit percentage as the stormtroopers, I think. Uh, when they're down in the Well of Souls, there's just a random gas can available so that they can help fend off the snakes. So that was helpful. Um, and then probably my biggest one, when they're on like the freighter mm-hmm. that gets boarded by the Nazis, Yeah. Indy escapes by jumping over the side of the boat into the ocean. Okay, fine swims to the top of a U-boat submarine and corrals it like a, uh, like a wild stallion <laughs> and rides it apparently all the way to Crete uh, and then emerges in the Nazi submarine hangar. So, okay, the submarine's going to ride on top of the ocean all the way to another island. Like, I just, I, there's a lot going on there that I that they just didn't explain. They're just like, well, he got that submarine and then we're going to draw a line on the map to the next destination. I think they, I, I think I read somewhere that there was like a cut scene or something that helped to fill in that gap, but it just ended up looking like he's like hanging on for dear life, riding, riding a submarine. (laughs) Just like he also can apparently hold his breath for however long. For days in the Mediterranean. Continuity error. I think we can chalk that down to any other glaring plot holes or or things that kind of stuck in your craw? Well, I mean, the fact that he doesn't get bitten by a snake, ever. Hmm. Face to face with a cobra. I'm just keep saying he's scared of him. It's like all also, over why does he hate snakes? What's up with that? Like, what's the story? I mean, we could read into that a little bit if we really wanted to go for it, but I feel like maybe that's for another day. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. What, what's your what's your armchair take on that? <laughs> I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think there's something interesting about this big, brave, supposedly brave guy who is afraid that by 
an animal that is fast, perhaps, perhaps faster than him, um, longer than him, and I, I think getting all the attention in the room. Mm, that's a great observation. It's like a threat into his masculinity. I, yeah, I think it's like there's not much else that gets to take him down. It is kind of it's like he is more scared of that snake than he is like with a than a, like he faces guys with giant machetes and he's like oh I'll just like you know shoot him or take out my whip or do something. He just seems annoyed whenever he faces a human enemy. The first time you see him seem like genuinely afraid is with that snake. Dude, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> like, even if the snake bites you. But damn, Diana, bringing in the the Freudian psychology to all of this, I, I like how you're elevating the analysis. You don't it's know good. if it's an elevation. This is where my brain is going at three o four on a Thursday. So we haven't talked too much about the villains in this franchise or this movie. There's actually some really great villains, and there's more than just one. There's like his rival in archaeology there's the nazis then there's like that henchman guy there's like the guy like there's just like a nice variety of of villains with like different motivations which i think is kind of cool who's your favorite villain the nazi monkey obviously (laughs) the nazi monkey wins uh Mm. besides who's your your non-primate favorite villain I like the guy that the the main like not the main but like the Nazi guy who we first meet and like just like how like when he like holds onto the the pendant and it burns into his hand and that shot of him just like having all the information and that's how they like they figured out how to go to Egypt and where where to find it but then like he had the he only had one side of it so they weren't able to like know the length of the staff or whatever like I just I think that's so cool and like. Yeah, I like. I, I think I like the, the t- stereotypical Nazi guy. I mean, it can't be Belloc. Belloc, I could, I could kick Belloc's ass, frankly. I think. Yeah. I think we all could. <laughs> I just, I, it's not him. Even though that's probably what his role was meant to represent. So yeah, it's a toss-up between Nazi, the Gestapo guy who we meet at the beginning, or. Or to some extent, I was always equally frustrated by the FBI, CIA, whatever U.S. agency mm. they're meant to be from, by those guys. I think they represent a lot of what's wrong, right, with what happened um, in archaeology in the in early, early days, early years, what, what have you. Um, and it's just like a, a lack of comprehension of what of what he's uncovered um, and how and how. Frankly, annoyed I get when they keep saying we have top we have top people on it, top people, top, top men, men are top are men on it. When he keeps pushing There's, them as to like where has it gone? Yeah, I mean, um, they're bureaucrats, right? Like they have a mission: keep the Nazis from obtaining the Ark. We will win the war. And once they get the Ark, they're like, "Cool, job done. Put some nails on it." put it away in row 37 of the world's largest warehouse. And so they're sort of, you know, they're acting for the good of the world, but they're also a bit villainous in that they're like, cool, no one will ever see that now. The U.S. bureaucrats who are in charge of this, the CIA or the NSA, whoever these people are. Was the CIA even invented by World War II? 
Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Now I'm curious. Man, Do there's so much. I'm history question. I do not know. <laughs> I think my favorite villain, uh, besides the ones that have already been mentioned, is the strong man who gets chewed up by the propeller of the plane. Oh, good one. Like, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite scenes. Like, I like that he's like a boxer. One of my, like, he has good form. Yeah. He's like a bare knuckle boxer who's got some smarts. And he's also like, indeed has some of his best comedic acting during that scene when he tries to fight him and then realizes that he's invisible. Um, it's good. It's good classic. Well, so who wins this movie besides Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford probably, you know, the obvious choice. But who comes out of this looking good besides him? I think Spielberg. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. It is. He, he has plenty of, of good, like, gold stars on his, but I think this was, like, a really great, like, this was his, like, blockbuster kind of, like, action flick. It's, like, such a transition from some of his other movies that I think it really, yeah. And it got a lot of respect from the Academy. Nine mm-hmm. nominations and a bunch of, I think, what we say, five w- wins, four wins. Yeah. I mean, Sala doesn't make out too bad. Sala's pretty good. Does Sala come back in subsequent movies? I don't, can't remember. Sure. Does he, he shows ever up have like a, one or not. like a kind of a, like, where, where is he at at the end of this movie? I, I don't remember. Did, did he make it? Do we see him at the end? He does. He, okay. he survives. But he doesn't, like, does he adopt the I don't think he travels to the him? unveiling. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Because that's the movie I want to watch. Uh, so he does He does make Sala's... another appearance. Oh, wait, the Guys, he's he died, in though. The Last Crusade. Yeah, I thought he was in the, in the Sean Connery mm. one. Which, you know, ironic twist, Sean Connery, the best Bond, shows up in the best modern Bond. <laughs> we'll have to do the third I, I movie. Really I think, think we can should... probably we can probably skip Temple of Doom, right? I don't know. I kind of want to hear Taylor no. go off about the Temple of Doom, <laughs> or is it the Crystal Crystal Skulls <laughs> right. that you feel strongly about? Is that the Temple of Doom? Oh no, Crystal say? Crystal Skull. I love and hate equally, but then Temple of Doom. Actually, no, Temple of Doom. I love and hate equally. Like Temple of Doom is so crazy and weird. And I love that, but it's also like the most problematic one. So, I wrote this down while watching the movie. What's Sala's job? Like, is he just uh, someone who travels around the world to different archaeological like, sites, and then he's like the Tevya of the Middle East. <laughs> he's, he's like kind of just. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of like yeah. a um, when you go to a hotel. What are they called? The people that just like know everything and they'll like hook you up like that's sala yeah he's like the concierge of archaeology he's like a fixer yeah that's Mm, right plug so is this the best that harrison ford ever was this one movie Hmm. i mean air force one pretty good for harrison uh Regarding Henry, um, 
The Fugitive. Pretty darn good. Uh, Han Solo. You know, I think I think I think we could just start the conversation there. Is he is Indiana Jones better than Han Solo? And it's something we already talked about earlier. It's kind of a toss up. So I don't think this mm-hmm. is the best that Harrison Ford ever was. I think there are other candidates that vie for. Is this the most iconic that title that Harrison Ford ever is? Though, because I would say it's not his best acting. However, I, I think when it comes to Call of the Wild. I don't think most of the people are bringing that up. You would maybe be acting pretty good. Um, is this the best? I don't know. I, I feel like my... It's really my, hard. My like knowledge of all Harrison Ford movies is probably not the best, so I, I can't speak towards it. But between Star Wars, Han Solo, and Indiana Jones, like I go back and forth. But I think... I don't know. <laughs> You can't, like, they kind of feel like the same person, just, like, in a different universe. Yeah, I mean, Blade Runner, Witness, Mosquito Coast, Working Girl, but who's more of a supporting supporting character in Apocalypse Now. Uh, Patriot Games, a whole other run at the James Bond mystique. Um, The Fugitive, which would be my nomination. Uh, Air Force Hex One. Two. Confess, I've never. Six days, seven nights. Uh, and then kind of a bit of a fall off in quality until we get to okay. modern Star Wars times and modern modern Blade Runner times and modern Indiana Jones times. Mm-hmm. I think there's also like a question of like who, like now that they're doing, like they did all of the, the sequels to the Star Wars movie and we got kind of like an older uh, Han Solo and, like, his story. And, like, I wonder how that's going to compare to, like, Indiana Jones, like, in this new movie and also the um, the Crystal Skull one. Like, who, who wh- between those two characters, like, who, who, like, had the most interesting life or the best kind of, like, closure to their story? Um, so that's a TBD kind of question because obviously there's a new... Indiana Jones movie coming out. Karen Allen, is this the best that she's ever done? She started at Animal House and then went on to become the love interest in Starman and then Scrooged. I think those are probably her most notable roles. Scrooged might be the best she's done. Like, she kind of had a real character in that movie. I haven't seen it, so I don't she's, know. Scrooged is quite good. Uh, Karen Allen took a break from acting and started a textile company in 2003. She was later awarded an honorary master's degree from the Fashion Institute of Technology. Did not see that coming. She she has a successful textile business. Um, Who comes out of this movie looking the best? Harrison Ford. I think he probably wins the movie. Honorable mention... Alfred Merlina? No. <laughs> I, think that's Sala. I think that's Sala Rossett. He goes on to do a bunch of yeah. other things, including the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's right. And he's just, he's very lovable, Sala. Like, he's very convincing as, like, the guy that you, as a fixer, as a guy that you would lean on in a tough spot and want to be around. When... 
you know, if if they'd gotten their way and cast Danny DeVito in that role, I I don't I think Sal is a better choice. Whoever that man is, <laughs> John Reese Davies. That's right. Uh, well, thank you both for joining this archaeological dig into one of the past's greatest films and possibly launching a series where we watch all four of them. Please don't make me watch the fourth one. Yeah, well, we can definitely put this podcast in a museum. (laughs) And with that, thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Diana. Uh, Hopefully we will have both of you for another episode very soon. Thank you, Tyson. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.